0: Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms, from the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries. Anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Simon Stevenson, author of Set My Heart to Five, published by Hanover Square Press, September 1st, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat to you.
0: Cool, cool. So first, I'm sure you have a lot of ideas running around in your head. Um, how did this particular one rise above the rest and get written and um, and uh, published?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question because I think we do all have that sort of, you know, endless roster of things that we think maybe I'll write this or maybe I'll write that. And I've been trying to write a novel for a very long time. It was... I published about nine years before this one, which gives you a bit of an idea of how long I've been trying. Wow. Um, and uh, with with this one, um, it was one of the few times that it so rarely happens to me, but this one, was, I can genuinely say that when the idea arrived, it kind of arrived sort of fully formed, and I kind of knew... I, I at least knew um, the character in the book, Jared, is a, a, a screenwriting android, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, came to me was, was the screenwriting android. I think where that came from was two things. One was that I had been living in the Bay Area. I had moved to the Bay Area kind of 18 months before. Mm-hmm. And it's a, very, it's a very sort of near future type place in some ways. Because, of course, it's, you know, an ordinary city the same as any other. Mm-hmm. But. So many of the people that you meet and encounter are you know people that are working in in tech in some form or other or some startup and some of the some of the ideas that you hear people talk about you know even just things that they're working on would sometimes take me aback in terms of how how futuristic they seemed and I, I remember the first night they're not in the Bay Area but the first time I met someone from SpaceX who was mm-hmm. I hadn't really heard of him and it was like it was like a friend of a friend and um I asked him you know, he was explaining what he did and I said, Oh that's great, you know, I hope you I hope you guys manage to launch a rocket sometime. And he said, Oh we've we've been launching a rocket every week for the past two years, you know. Um and so so so, so that sort of sense of wow the future's ready here. Um there was an, also an incident when I, I stayed in a hotel and uh, I forgot my toothpaste and I called down for uh to see if someone could bring up some toothpaste and what they sent up was basically a little a little robot with the toothpaste. Mm. Um uh, so, so that was part of it. And then the other part of it, the screenwriting part, my day job at that time, I was working for a an animation company who are well known for kind of essentially the emotion in, in the movies that they make. And so a lot of my day job was spent kind of thinking about that and how movies engender emotion and the ways they succeed and the ways they fail. And so I think kind of putting those things together, you know, brought me to a a, a Android who is trying to be a screenwriter.
0: Hmm. So let's uh, talk about the book itself. Can you tell me a little mm. about the protagonist, the setting, the conflict?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so the book is set in in 2054, mm. and one of the reviews described it as a an all too human 2054, which I think is quite a good way of putting it. So um, it's not it's not a dystopia. It's not you know things haven't gone terribly wrong. They've just gone a bit wrong, mm. and, and kind of in a in a sort of human way. So two of the details about the world one is that um humans have now locked themselves out of the internet Mm. and we did that by uh you know when you forget the name of your you forget your password and then it sends it to your your old email account for recovery and then but you've forgotten the (laughs) password for your old email account so it asks you your you, you know the name of your first pet and your favorite teacher and so we're saying that on a critical day in 2037 enough humans forgot the, not the name of their first pet and favorite teacher. And that kind of led to this panicked wave of forgetting, which which locks humans out of the internet, which of course has, has terrible consequences these days. Um, and then um, the other sort of slightly more comical fact is that it's a world where Elon Musk has incinerated the moon. Um, and it's important to say that uh, he did this in a hilarious prank, uh, you, you know, he wasn't trying to do anything wrong. It was kind of, you know, like when he when he sent the Tesla Roadster into into space. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just that sort of prank. But it just, it, it he he didn't realise people weren't that weren't going to like it. Um. So 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 that is, that kind of 2054. Um. I've been calling it a mistopia, like M I S S topia for the near miss rather than dystopia. Um. And then yeah, the book is written by jared who's an android um and so one of the things about 2054 is we will have at least in in this world we, we, we will have androids by then i i think we may well actually um jared's uh jared's sort of um makeup is that he um he's he's essentially a physical human
0: body mm-hmm. so, so, so he's he's you know manufactured from human dna and the only difference
1: is that they've taken out the bit of in, in in the source code of the dna they've swapped out the bit of dna that codes for consciousness with dna which essentially codes for say windows 97 um yeah. and so that gives you a programmable android but as humans we're of course going to be very um you know we're naturally suspicious and we're and we're protective of the things that we feel are ours so um, we're going to make the androids do all the jobs we don't want to do so Jarrah's a dentist to that end um <laughs> But one of the um, one of the sort of main things that humans are going to be concerned about is really the only advantage we're going to have over artificial intelligence is emotion and feelings because, you know, of course, they can do everything calculation and language kind of based far better than us. So the idea then is that humans are, you know, yeah, don't let bots have any feelings and Jared, of course, um, slowly begins to wonder if he might be feeling something. So the movie is kind of the story of, Jared's emotional um, awakening—an emotional awakening which occurs. It's kind of provoked by seeing old movies. Um, The the idea is that uh, in the future, all the movies are you know big Marvel kind of extravaganzas about about killer robots. But there's still, you know, the small sort of repertory theatres still still show kind of old-fashioned movies. But of course, by by 2054 we've all locked ourselves out out of the internet which led to this great, you know, a great crash, a kind of great data loss event and that means that, you know, most of the movies from, you know, the last 50 years before that were lost and, you know, the movies that survived were the movies that were stored on, on film hmm. uh, because they weren't stored di- digitally and, of course, the movies that survived because they were stored on film were, you know, mainly the movies that they had a lot of prints of. So, um, that would be, you know, the big commercial hits. So, so, so kind of one of the jokes in the book is that if you're, um, you know, if you're a cinephile today, you know, you love to go to, you know, the cinema and see an obscure French documentary from 1964 that's eight hours long and in black and white. And But if you're a, a cinephile in 2054, um, you're going to go and see things like Titanic. Um, but you're still going to come back and tell all your friends that you've seen this wonderful obscure art film that, you know, they won't appreciate because it's high um, art. <laughs> and, 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 and you're the cinephile and they're not. So, um, so, so, so yeah, Jared's sort of, you know, learns his emotions from a very particular kind of movie which is things like um say the Shawshank Redemption you know know, movies which you know have have had a big impact on me um and all that being so eventually he um the the Bureau of Robotics who are the kind of the organization that are charged with sort of overseeing robots and making sure they don't feel you know eventually learn that Jared has been going to the movies Mm. and that's obviously a problem bots aren't allowed to go to the movies so um they send him a notice to come in and be wiped or incinerated. Um, hmm. And as a sort of farewell gesture, Jared has one one human friend who's the sort of the person that kind of introduced him to the movies. Um, and the friend shows him sort of one last movie, and for better or for worse, the movie that um, the friend shows Jared is Blade Runner. And obviously, if you're a <laughs> uh, an, an android, that that's going to you know. I think as humans we love that movie, but if you're an android, that's you know, it's going to be a very profound experience in terms of you know representation and seeing yourself on the on the screen. So, Blade Runner has this huge effect on Jared. He he thinks it's the greatest movie that's ever made, and he thinks that it's so moving when you you know um, Harrison Ford and Rutger Hauer wrestling on on the rooftop yeah. and. You know the dying android makes his his very famous speech. Mm-hmm. Um, Jared is so moved by that that he gets the idea that look if only if only humans could see this movie, then <laughs> then they, they wouldn't want to. You know, how could you see this movie and then want to incinerate an android for having feelings? You know, if they saw this movie, they would understand. And of course, Jared's friend said, "Well, the problem here is um, humans have all seen this movie. This movie was really popular. Right? Everyone's seen it already." Jared the Android is sort of baffled because he still thinks, Well, how can they how can they want to incinerate me then? And the doctor says, Well, the problem is, you know, this movie was made before we had androids. So believe it or not, humans watch this movie about a feeling Android and they don't think, oh wow, androids are more sensitive and kinder than than, than we thought. They think, wow, the, the humans that made this film are more sensitive and kind than we ever thought, because they can even make an Android seem sensitive. Um so, of course, Jared being an android, he has a very sort of logical thought process and it's, you know, in many ways too logical because he he sort of deciphers this to me wait, way. Are you saying that if I, if I as an android, went and wrote a movie about feeling androids, then people would, people would, you know, accept that as proof that androids can feel? And the doctor says, no, his, his friend who's the doctor says, no, no, that's not what I was saying at all. Um but, of course, Jared gets the idea in his head. And so, you know, Jared then basically, you know, the, the emotional thrust of the book is that Jared sets out to write his own movie that's going to change the world because it's going to stop uh, humans thinking that um, uh, robots like him should, should, should be incinerated if they have feelings. And then, of course, you know, so, so he sets out to Los Angeles for, for uh, this great adventure. And um, uh, having been someone myself who set out for Los Angeles for a great adventure in screenwriting, um, things rarely go to plan. I'm, on okay.
0: I'm speaking with Simon Stevenson, author of Set My Heart to Five. You can find more information about his work at simonstevenson.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at MilitaryHistoryPodcast.com and com. Now back to the podcast. So, um, I've, start, I've read the first uh, chapter of the book, and at first I was a little... So the writing, the way it's broken out, was a little bit uh, different, um... Yeah. So it threw me for a little bit, but it's I've gotten into the the rhythm of it and it's uh it's interesting, especially when you add the bit about what his journey will be.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the, I mean I mean the Android Voice is um uh you know, it's it, it it it's definitely a tricky thing to get right and you know, I think, you know some people love it. I think, you know, some people find it um, you know, a little bit of a challenge and, and it's just kind of that's kind of what I was trying to do, you know, because I sort of um I think Androids, you know, if they try to write a book, you know, it will be, you know, different from, you know, the books that, that we're accustomed to. And kind of mm-hmm. kind of the idea, I mean, Jared sort of, he, he says it in the book, that he kind of, one of the things he finds hardest uh, as, a, as a writer is, is simply paragraphs because, you know, Androids are programmed to think in code, they think in code. So, you mm-hmm. know, sort of lots of hard returns and just individual lines, which, as the book progresses and Jared kind of gets more practice at writing, it kind of, you know, slightly evolves it in, 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 into a sort of more conventional uh, layout or or, or 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 format of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Part of uh, and it, he kind of reminded me, or the character reminds me of Data from Star Trek, not precisely, but but in a sense, sort of that uh, that probing, searching, confused uh, manner.
1: Absolutely, yeah. There's a sort of um, a great, you know, a great history of kind of, you know, androids, you know, going all the way back to, you know, let's say even, you know, Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, being sort of um, mystified by humans and kind of, uh, you know, wanting to understand us and you know be like us and and and, and not always get it right. So 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 so, so yeah, data was definitely a definitely one of of the inspirations and he's a very good model for like a a very sort of human looking android isn't he Mm -hmm.
0: so um did you do any research for the book
1: Mm. yeah i mean i I would say that like most of this like i'm i'm endlessly inspired by geography and place and Mm -hmm. geography and place are really important to me and so a lot of the um the basically Three geographic locations in the book, so it's sort of, um, which maybe maybe I won't say to to to, to spoil surprises, but right. um, yeah. uh, a, a lot of it kind of the detail of the book actually comes from you know my own journey and my own experiences here in Los Angeles and California and the and and and, and the film business. So um, a, a lot of that I didn't really I didn't really have to research mm-hmm. um, because it's you, you know the book is set in kind of in kind of a recognisable. 2054 so so it's you know it's the same streets and the same places but you know we now have you know androids walking them um and then in terms of the um in, in terms of the ai and the and the data uh, just in terms of the ai and and, and the, the biological issues so so i am um, by trade i was a physician i, I was a doctor in the uk mm. um and and so the sort of um i, I think the basic um, the basic idea, a lot of that comes from, I'm endlessly fascinated by um, this technology called CRISPR, which, which I'm sure you and your listeners are, are familiar with, um, which is, you know, the technology by which humans can now uh, essentially edit the human genome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I just feel, I'm, I'm so excited by this technology. I think it has this amazing capacity to, um, you know, provide treatments for things which, you know, long haven't. Had any treatments, um, but I also feel that as a, as a society, the the discussions that we're having just aren't really aren't really aware of where the technology is. So, so for instance, I am um, I'm from Edinburgh in Scotland, mm-hmm. and uh, one of our famous um, one of, one of our famous inhabitants, uh, ex-inhabitants, um, was Dolly the sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, who, if you remember, Dolly the sheep was the sheep that was cloned in 1997. Mm-hmm. Which is, is now twenty three years ago, and if you think so, twenty three years ago we were cloning sheep. Um, you know, we're now at a point where you know a few years ago I read in the paper that Barbara Streisand had cloned her pet dog after it died, right. and it had cost her thirty thousand um, dollars. so, you know, I, I think the notion of um, my understanding is that you know the the technology to clone a human is you know probably absolutely already there and hopefully no one's doing it, but, you know, I would not be surprised if in some dark warehouse in some corner of the world some uh, yeah. sinister some, 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 some experiment is, is, is already a fruit. So mm-hmm. um, I think in terms, of, that's kind of where the, the idea of androids that's created by manipulating DNA mm-hmm. came from. It, it, it pulled my own sort of medical background and, interest. and then, But, yeah, in terms of AI itself, I would have to confess that that's, um, that's not sort of so heavily researched or accurate in the way that um, you know some some science fiction can be and and and, and often is. Um, and I think you know really what I you know in terms of the hierarchy of things that I was you know wanting to write about, mm-hmm. you, you know I was sort of more concerned with you know exploring you know emotion and you know what a, what a non-human might think of us, you know rather than. Uh, you know, getting the kind of you know the precise details of, of how, how an AI would, would function on a, on a on a you know theoretical cognitive cognitive level, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess I think there's the term social science fiction. It sounds like it falls in that category.
1: Um, oh, that's a, I hadn't heard that term. That sounds that that sounds exactly great. I mean, I've also I've, people have said that speculative fiction can be more Ideas based in and, and science fiction is supposed to be more accurate. I I, I don't know if if that's right, but, but mm-hmm. that was another another term I heard. But I do like social science fiction. That's I'm going maybe I'll start saying that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think I've come across it. You know, like Fahrenheit 451 and and uh, yeah. things like that. Yeah, no, that
1: that sounds ideal. That's uh, I think that's a great term. I think I'm going to be <laughs> updating my website when we get off the call.
0: Um. What are some of the things uh books, music or shows that uh that generally inspire you or your creativity?
1: Right, great great question. I mean, I think the um in, I mean in some ways this book is is itself kind of a um it's kind of a love letter to the movies. So, it's um it's really, you know, hugely inspired by by film in general and um, perhaps specifically by you know, the kind of movies that I grew up seeing, the kind of movies that I grew up seeing, because, you know, I, I grew up in, I was born in 1978 and, and I grew up in Scotland. So, you know, in, let's say I was 15 in 1993, and I think we probably all have, you know, some of our most formative experiences in those in, in, in those teenage years. Um, 1993 in, in movies was things like, yeah, things like Forrest Gump and The Shawshank Redemption. So, you know, these were um, these were studio movies, right? So, 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 they certainly, you know, were were commercial products. Um, but yet, they always had, you, you know, to my viewing, they had these, you know, massive amounts of heart. And sure, they, you know, they didn't get everything right. And with hindsight, like, you know, some of them can be problematic, but. Uh, I think w- partly what I was trying to capture in the book was the experience that I used to have of seeing those movies, which was, you know, I always felt like being, I was taken on this kind of emotional emotional roller coaster. you know, that you plug in at the start of the movie mm-hmm. and you knew that you were going to, you know, be taken on this, you know, rapid journey where you were going to laugh and cry and be horrified and, mm-hmm. you know, and then ultimately at the end you would feel this cathartic sense of, you know, relief and relief and this feeling that, you know, you'd been on this exhilarating journey and it had been a great journey and it had concluded in, in, in the right way. Um, and that that feeling is kind of, I think, you know, in lots of ways what, what I've spent my time as a screenwriter trying to capture, And but particularly with this book that was supposed to be kind of, you know, a love letter to the movies. I, I set myself that, you know, the really Bold and ambitious task of trying to kind of emulate that feeling. So, 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 trying to give the reader that sort of same experience of highs and lows, and when you complete the journey, uh, emotional catharsis. So, 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 I would say that um, those those movies have um, really pro- pro- probably been been the biggest influence on on this book. Um, and then, in terms of the, the writing itself, I think. Um, a couple of writers, for instance, so Corey Doctorow. Corey Doctrow's, uh mm-hmm. Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, mm-hmm. um, you know, I probably read that again at a fairly, uh, no, I mean, I was older, wasn't I, because it came out in, in, in the early 2000s, but certainly that was, you know, a, a critical, a critical book, just in terms of the way he writes about, you know, big ideas with, with humor. Mm-hmm. So that was one. Um, also in writing about ideas, I mean, Douglas Copeland, um, uh, the the Canadian writer you know he wrote he wrote Generation X and Girlfriend in a Coma and things like that and again you know not um, not a sci-fi writer per se but you know just kind of like 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 a writer a writer of ideas mm-hmm. um, and, and and in some ways this was um, it was really exciting to me to, to to write a book where I was able to explore some some ideas and some some thoughts I have about you know, the strange ways in which we behave as humans that, you know, if an alien came and saw us, they would say, well, why, why, why are you, why are you doing that? Why, why is that in the situation? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Does, does the book have any sort of, uh, what do you think the soundtrack of the book would be? Like what, what's its aesthetic? What's its feel?
1: Oh, oh, brilliant. Well, um, that's, that's a really good question. And, and I've never been, uh, I've, I've never been asked that before. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I think it would be, you know, the world in which the, the, the book is this weird sort of hybrid near future. So it, it's 2054. And, you know, so we have Androids. But equally, then, we have, you know, so we've gone rapidly forward in some ways. But we've gone fairly far back in others in that, you know, for instance, we don't have airplanes anymore. You, you know, because when they had the great data loss event, mm. the great crash, um, all the airplanes fell out of the sky and you know so so of course the technology still exists Mm. but the problem is that all the airplane all all the airlines and the you know insurance companies and whoever else are all just locked in this you know this death spiral of litigation uh stemming from that terrible event so um i think the music would probably reflect that, that that like it might be something that's both um you know from the past and from the future so for instance one of the um one of the bits of music that Jared sort of is drawn to is um, his—he's he, a dentist and his his. Receptionist and his dental hygienist love the um, you know you know that Pina Colada song about you know if you if you like Pina Coladas oh, yeah. and <laughs> yes. yeah yeah so so, so 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 that's kind of you know always playing on an oldie station and Jared's kind of you know just obsessed with that song and and and, and the, the, the weird things that go on and that, that even to us humans are you know mm. intriguing and, and interesting but to Jared are just are just baffling so you know I think there'd be the oldies but then also like for instance I. Um, I'm Scottish. And so, so, so we have a band churches, uh, who of course, are you know, I think that I mean, we are global stars at this point. Um, but they make this sort of like, you know, slightly futuristic sort of synth pop, but it goes, you know, it, it draws on things like, like, um, like Blondie. And, uh, I think maybe something like that that's, yeah, that's a mixture
0: of the past and the future. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Which felt like Wagging a mixture.
1: To... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That sounds about right to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Would you say there's anything out of the ordinary that you do to complete your work?
1: Like like on a on a just on, on a sort of practical, pragmatic writing level. Yes. Um yeah, a good question. I mean, no, I mean I think um, you know, I've been, you know, a full time writer for you know, eight or nine years now on the, you know, on the screenwriting side. And, you know, before that, I'd I'd written a book and, and I'd always written. And I think, unfortunately, no, I, I think that, you know, all that I've learned is it's just about showing up at your desk every day. And I wish I had some magic, uh, um, sort of some magic method or protocol or hack. But, uh, um, you know, even, you know, even on the bad days, I think, you know, I've learned that, you know, what comes out is just directly proportional to to the hours to, to the hours put in. So for me, it's kind of, it is all that advice that, you know, you always read about, you know, just routine and, you know, trying to write, you know, I, I don't have a set word count every day, but I certainly, you know, set myself goals and things like that. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think just, uh, just coffee and time on the chair. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's, uh, is it, 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 my only secret.
0: Yeah. Are you one who likes to listen to music while you write? right? Are you, avoid that.
1: Yeah. It's I, I, it has to be very specific. So I do like it, but I sort of like acoustic music with few lyrics tends to be my, my jam when I'm writing, because if I, if I'm listening to something that has a lot of lyrics, you know, I'll find those lyrics mystically appearing on the page that, 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 that I'm writing as a problem. My, I, I mean, I've worked out over the years that, you know, my best thing is like, I'm not, I'm not someone who loves complete isolation, um, but equally, you know too much noise is, is makes it makes very difficult for me to write so um it turns out that you know technology is actually my friend here because mm-hmm. the invention of the noise cancelling headphones has just been an absolute game changer so you know whereas you know my friends used to say oh you can write anywhere why don't you write in the coffee shop and you know i would always think well that sounds great but you know you go there and then someone next to you starts taking a phone call and someone else is you know doing an mlm scheme you know and there's just there's just too much going on but um mm-hmm what i 've learned is that um the noise canceling technology it doesn't you know doesn 't silence that, but it just takes it down to this perfect background level, so I think you know I think I find that that slight buzz of other humans being around you know good and comforting and uh, a, a good place to write and then the other thing about writing in a coffee shop here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Is that um, you know you can see from a distance you know, you know if someone's working on a screenplay right because just because the the way it's laid out on the page is so striking mm-hmm. um, and there's this tremendous evolutionary pressure which comes from sitting in a coffee shop and looking around you and seeing ten other people who are writing screenplays mm-hmm. and that they're all making you know frantic progress or they're all typing very fast and um, <laughs> it, it's a really good incentive to think well well she's she's doing very well I'll better try and you know get some pages down or I'm going to get left behind. <laughs>
0: So since you've been at this for eight you said eight or nine years um yeah how has your approach to writing changed over that time or has it
1: yeah i, I mean that's a good question i think um i think one thing is one thing that's probably good in terms of because for most of that time it, it's been screenwriting right that that's been that's been my job and i think mm-hmm. i think the one thing that screenwriting is is good at is it certainly certainly stops you being precious you, you know because you don't survive very long if you're if, if, if you're precious about you know if you're too precious about your work um and i think it's sort of it engenders this sense that um it is a process so like all your you know if if you get the job to write a script for a a studio or something you know your contract by definition will have you know three steps in it or four steps in it which you know is essentially three or four drafts so you know the assumption is that you know the first draft is never going to be is never going to be perfect Um, and I actually found that you know quite liberating because I think as writers sometimes you know we have this idea that you know, we're supposed to be these, you know, untouchable geniuses that, you know, deliver these, you know, completed manuscripts that are word perfect and, and nobody nobody can have any thoughts on or, or change a word. And, um, and obviously in screenwriting, that can go too far. You know, obviously in screenwriting, you sometimes get the, well, I love it, but whatever made the bad guy the good guy and, you know, all, all those kind of notes. But but I think just that, that understanding of that it is a process and that, you know, other voices can add something, I, th- I think has been, has been, has been, you know, such something that I've learned. Um, but then the flip side to that is I love, um, I love William Goldman. You know, the, um, he, he he wrote uh, The Princess Bride and, you know, a bunch of great movies. Um, and he also wrote this incredible memoir about uh, his, his life in, as a screenwriter, which was called Adventures in the Screen Trade. And uh, it, you know, begins with the immortal line, nobody knows anything. Um, which is, I think, you know, absolutely true, particularly when it comes to, you know, you know people's, people's work. So um, I think one thing that I've learned is, you know, to certainly listen to feedback, but at the same time, if there's something that, you know, I'm certain about and, you know, I'm sure that, you know, this, this is a great idea and it's just I've not executed it well enough. Yeah, or I've just you know it needs to be polished, or it needs to. Um, so you know, I think I, I, I guess it's always a balance. It is it, that I've learned? I've, I think I've genuinely learned both to listen, um, but also you know when not to listen.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Simon Stevenson, author of Set My Heart to Five. You can find more information about his work at simonstevenson if you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast so what non-writing work have you done that may have influenced how or what you write and you mentioned you know your your medical work um yeah other stuff
1: yeah it it it's a great question i mean I, I think it all goes into i think all life experience kind of goes into this this melting pot of you know your 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 mind and when and when you're trying to tell stories you know you you, you tend to pick sort of Elements out of it, so and certainly I can see it in this book, so you know Jared's a dentist, and I was a doctor, and you know so there's obviously you know there's a bit of overlap there, and you know maybe some of some of Jared's frustrations that he ultimately begins to feel with dentistry once he starts to feel you know those are you know similar frustrations to maybe some of the ones that I had about medicine hmm. um and then but for instance, so when I was uh as I say I'm from Scotland, when when I was my early when I was in my early 20s, I came to the United States for the first time and I spent a summer as a um, as a dishwasher in a, a, a restaurant on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Hmm. Um, and in the book, Jared at one point gets a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant and kind of all of that is, you know, pretty much directly drawn from my experience of working in that restaurant kitchen. Um, and, I, you know that's great because, you know, it was at this point 20 years ago and I didn't, I suppose I'd never really, you know, thought about writing it and I certainly at the time it wasn't, you know, it wasn't research for anything. Um, but but I think that's a sort of great example of how, you know, the, the lived experience is just always so fantastically useful and, you know, even if you don't write about it at the time, maybe you're going to write about it um, 20 years later. mm mm-hmm
0: so i know your bio mentions that you've worked for a major company it's i'm not you didn't name it so i'm not going to name it so i'm just curious if you'd like to talk oh. about that work or or not
1: yeah I, 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 absolutely sure so um uh i mean I, th- I think in fairness like i'm i think i'm you know I, I think i'm not supposed to mention it however in fairness it is actually um it's it's on. I noticed it is actually on on the cover of the, of the hardback book. So uh, there's probably no harm. The the, the company I worked for was Pixar. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say much about it because the uh, the project they worked on, you know, hasn't hasn't entered the world yet. And they're they're very you know rightly sort of very protective. And I think it goes back to you know the company was set up by Steve Jobs, and so you know you actually in the same way that Apple are sort of very you know you never know when the new iPhones coming out until the announcement right and and Pixar take a kind of a kind of similar approach um uh, I mean I guess, I guess what I can say is that it's you know it's one of the dream jobs in screenwriting you know I'm there I'm their huge fan and mm-hmm. you know working walking through those gates even you know was was a thrill every day mm-hmm. and that's before you know you know you get the chance to to, to to work with them and certainly you know I think there's no secret that you know their process is one of iteration you know you know they always say that um the reason why they they make good films is because you know along the way they've kind of explored every avenue and made every bad version of that film to get to the perfect one and i think that was you know that was a really good lesson for me again just going back to you know that, well if, if these guys you know feel that way then you know i should i i, I should feel that way too and um I, th- I think it was just great in terms of like taking creative risk. And, you know, perhaps if I don't know, like if, if I ha- if I had not worked there, I don't know if I would have, you know placed this this bet on myself to write a, you know, four hundred and fifty page novel about a screenwriting Android because you know on the face of it it seems like, you know, quite quite an odd and slightly out there idea. Mm-hmm. Um and I think maybe it was it was being around those people who, you know, have that attitude of Exploration and discovery that maybe, maybe you know, gave me the
0: confidence to do that. Mm -hmm. So, and let me know if you can't answer this question. But writing for for animated movies for for Pixar is it a different process than your standard live action studio film?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and again, like like I think this, you know the stuff I'll talk about is on the public domain, so so, I think that's fine. Um, uh, Yes, I mean, I think they, you know, every, the Pixar movies are all, they they use the phrase Mm director-driven. So how that works is the directors at Pixar all kind of come from a sort of storyboard artist background. You you know, they're all, that's their training. Um, And the movies are really all you know they all belong to their director you know perhaps more than anywhere else the movie is you know the the director's child and labor of love and and you know rightly so because they're the person that works on it for five years and um, and they're the person that, that steers the ship and so uh, as a writer there you're kind of um you're brought on to uh a director will have you know pitched a pitched an idea um for, for, for a story and and importantly um the idea has to have a real emotional resonance to the director. You, you know, usually I think it's based on some, some emotional experience that, that they've had at some point. And then once they have the idea, then they start meeting writers and they bring on a writer to, um, to work to the director's vision. And um, that's, uh, that's probably, um, I, I mean, here, here here in Los Angeles, yes, the director is, is, is is still the, um, you, you know, it's is the great creative genius behind it, but you, you know, Sometimes sometimes a director, I guess here often a director will come onto a project later. So, you know, a studio will have optioned a book or will have an idea or you'll have an idea. And, you know, often you'll, you know, deliver the script. And then once they have the script, they'll go and find the director. So so, so I think the Pixar model, probably fair to say it's, it's a lot more organic. And, you know, again, like I feel like perhaps that's part of the secret of, of why it's so emotional that the stories are told, you know, primarily from a point of, people having a burning desire of the story they want to tell mm-hmm. rather than here in Los Angeles, which is usually, you know, people spotting a gap in the market and realizing <laughs> that there's a, you know, that th- they don't have a spy film for next year, you know, you know that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I guess I'm fascinated because normally isn't the writer just, they the script is bought and then the writer is basically told to just get out of here while we make the movie. and. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that depends if you're, um, uh it kind of depends where you are in the firmament right and and you know and who you're working with like uh, like you know some ultimately again the director's captain of the ship and you know i think some directors you know are very collaborative and you know want to want to work with writers and enjoy that process and you know some directors don't you know some directors are brilliant writers themselves and are perfectly capable of um, of, of of writing things so um, i mean i like to joke that i've had every every you know possible screenwriting here in, every possible screenwriting experience here in Hollywood, you know, right the way through from bad to awful. Um, but, uh, but, 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 uh, um, and, and, and I'm joking, of course, because actually I some one time, but there's actually you know, the moment when, when Jared in the book kind of addresses this and, you know, sometimes he finds, he finds it easier to explain things through the medium of algorithms because he's a robot. So at one point he figures out that, you know, the algorithm for producing a movie, the box at the top says, is everything with the movie going as well as it possibly can be? Question mark. And then you have two sort of, you know, two routes from here. You have yes and no. And however you answer that question, whether it's yes or no, they both lead to a single box, which is, have you tried firing the writer? Question mark, um, and then you know there's another yes and no, and they both need to fire the writer. Um, so, so I mean, I mean certainly that you know that does still happen here in Los Angeles an awful lot, and you know I think it's not uncommon for I've had friends who've had this experience where you know they've sold some script and you know it you know. Studio, you know, send it to five different writers, and then eventually, at some point, it comes back to them to, you know, to undo all the rewriting that was done. So, um, (laughs) yeah, as we were saying, um, uh, the old maxim of nobody knows anything is probably still probably still fully in force.
0: Did you have experience in writing for animation?
1: Um, I did not. No, and uh, you you know that's um, that's a super interesting process because because of course you know it's freeing and you know there's no. you know in in the movies i think you have to be conscious of you know you have to be somewhat conscious of budget right and and so you you know but when you're writing animation you know it's kind of all the same budget because it costs the same to set something in outer space as it does in you know the in 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 someone's backyard mm-hmm. um and and then but then the other difference of course is with um with writing for animation, you also have, you know, the input of all the all the storyboard artists, um, who are themselves, you know, great storytellers, and that's their and and that's their background. So, um, you know, there's definitely more more voices in the room. But, um, you know, I I found it great, and I think as, you know, one one of the great screen, screenwriting rules is show don't tell. But I think, you know, as naturally as writers, I think we're probably slightly more word people than picture people mm-hmm. um, so uh, I think that you know having those storyboard artists is brilliant because they are just you know they're such fantastic visual storytellers mm-hmm. um, so, so, so yeah that was my that was my first my first experience in, in, in the world of animation but I really enjoyed it I would, I would definitely do it again
0: so when you so writing for animation do you have voices in mind you know because you know they add voice actors to the animation or is it yeah
1: you, I mean, generally, I tend to whenever I write anything, I try to, um, I try to not have actors in mind because what I always find is that you know if you do that, then you kind of end up with. Kind of the version of the you know the person that the actor always plays, mm-hmm. like there's a British actor called Bill Nye, and you know you know him from things like love actually where he's the where's the, he's the old rocker guy mm-hmm. um and uh, you know and he's a brilliant actor you, you know he's one of our you know one of our leading actors you know for many decades now um but I increasingly think that like i I suspect that writers now at this point when they 're writing a script, they might not even make up a character name they might just You know, putting old Bill Nye enters because they just always have the pro guy doing kind of (laughs) kind of the same thing. Um, So I think that um, I I try and really consciously not have those thoughts in mind um, in terms of the animation process. Um, I think that I know that, and again, it's not a secret that you know what they do at Pixar is um, they do what's called scratch recording. So um, when they're kind of they. The, the, the process for animation is that you tend to do sort of like 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 a very rough looking animation first. So it's not coloured; it's just kind of sketched out from the storyboard. So it's, it's almost in live action. What they would call a, a pre visualization, um, and that's the sort of that's the medium you, that you work with to get the story right. Um, and then the um, with the uh, with the dialogue for that, they do what's called scratch recording. So that will tend to be not people you know not famous actors certainly and you know rarely the people that are going to be the final voice on the movie but it's just someone you know so so it's someone playing that part until you know you bring in you know whoever they bring in you know tom hanks or whoever for the for the main role Mm -hmm.
0: so let's uh i'll get back to um set my heart to five did you overwrite it and have to cut out parts was there much you had to edit
1: um it's, it's a great question um with this one, actually, no. I mean, I tend to be. I think everyone's process is different. I tend to edit fairly heavily as I go, and mm-hmm. um, so, I think I certainly, you know, I'm I'm sure that in the process, mm-hmm. you know, just in terms of sheer numbers of words typed, um, I, I it probably would be equivalent to you know a massive editing job, but at the same time, it meant that when I got to the end of the manuscript, um, like of course I you know. Had many more passes on it, but there wasn't ever like a you know this twenty thousand word mm-hmm. chunk is going you know, and partly also I think you know because it's um because it's a uh, in some ways a quest and a journey story. um I think you know so, so, sort of ahead of time you can you, you can you can slightly know you know what you're going to need to tell that story so in some ways i i think maybe the biggest work was just on the voice actually so you know as you've read you know there's lots of you know lots of jokes and one-liners along the way and you know part of you know part of jared's thing is you know we're kind of supposed to find androids a little bit irritating um so trying to sort of convey that in a way that's you know you're aware of it being irritating, but you find it funny rather than it just being irritating. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so that that was probably the most work in terms of, you know, I'd sit there in the coffee shop kind of, you know, reading it out loud to myself under my breath and, you know, mm. getting lots of funny looks along the way.
0: Uh, um, no, and then other people are like, hmm, maybe I should be doing the same thing and then everyone's doing it.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe I've given them the evolutionary pressure this time.
0: <laughs> so... Considering the way the the phrases or the paragraphs are laid out on the page, did you have to, I haven't noticed if there's any um, lyrical or poetic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, pattern to it. Did, was there anything like that as you were writing this that you had to be aware of or maintained?
1: Um, uh, I, I mean, I think the main thing is kind of that gradual transition from, you know, Jared really speaking almost, Entirely in lines of code to like beginning to kind of um you know it to be more flowing and then also kind of as his you know as his feelings develop, he begins to understand things like you know metaphor and pun, although of course he again like he he tends to not necessarily get them right like he thinks puns are much funnier than they are, so you know that's kind of a that's kind of a recurring motive and then structurally maybe the one sort of unusual thing that happens is some sections of the book are written in screenplay format. Uh, Like they're laid out like a screenplay. Um, And the idea for that is is two things. One, of course, is, you know, Jarry's writing a a screenplay, so lots of the book is about screenwriting, and it felt to me like if you're going to tell a story that screenwriting is such an important part of, you know, it makes sense to kind of, you know, have a bit of that and and show the journey he's on that way. Um, But then the other thing is that, and I kind of stumbled upon this in truth, um, I found it a very freeing thing because if you're... The book's written, apart from these sections, the book's written in the first person. So, you know, of course, if you have a first-person narrator, they can they can tell you how they're feeling at any point. Um, but I think there's something sometimes... And that can be very powerful, but I think sometimes there's a, there's a different kind of power and perhaps a bigger power in simply just witnessing something ourselves as an audience. So perhaps some of the... And she's written in, in screenplay format, so we take the camera kind of, you know, outsider you know, directly in there, and process it over here in the corner of the room and watch the watch the scene unfold of course, those scenes are still are still written by Jared because it's jared's book, so, so they're all still you know kind of seen through his prism, but it just it's a kind of
0: a technique that I think let me feel a bit more for him mm-hmm. have you um since you mentioned the coding part a couple of times, have you ever gone yeah. enjoyed the pain of of actually coding?
1: I, I have not, and you, you know my my full admiration to you know anybody that has and that can because you know they make they make our world on don't they? And, and mm-hmm. it's funny, like I haven't. Uh, it's only been actually since the book came out that I've been thinking, well, maybe I should you know investigate that. And you know, I've had a couple of a couple of preliminary conversations with you know friends who, you know, have been to boot camps and things like that. But in all honesty, I, am um, I mean, I struggle, you know, making Squarespace work by website, so I don't know if I would last very long. <laughs> oh
0: man. Um, so I'll ask a bit of a whimsical question now. Um, sure. when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting that, uh, you yearned for or wanted to be part of?
1: Oh, wow, what a great question. Um, I think, again, going, just going to the, I think so much often just stems from, you know, the simple chronology of, of, of when you grew up. And, you know, so, so, so in that kind of late 80s, early 90s time, late 80s really, actually, um, I think our, you know, whole generation's collective view of the future yeah. was just forever shaped by the Back to the Future movies, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that probably the hoverboard was the bit of technology, you, you know, the skateboard that was, you know, hovered, mm-hmm. was the bit of technology that we all just yearned for, like so much more than even than even flying cars. It was, it was the hoverboard was was the bit that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's you know seems to be one of the few things from that movie that hasn't that hasn't actually really happened.
0: <laughs> um, pers- so I grew up, um, on in the u.s but but off uh watching pbs and bbc and all the english shows and, and all that and so i wonder so what was so what was it like growing up in scotland as far as you know it seems like that part of the world was the coolest place all the coolest stuff was coming out of there did that did it feel that way to you
1: no, and it's so funny, isn't it? I mean, like, absolutely the opposite. You know, I think, you know, we would talk about, you know, that we were all endlessly fascinated with American culture, you know, and it was, you know, all the, you know, all. and I think the movies had such a big, you know, a big part of that, and I think we underestimate as a world, like, the impact that, you know, those representations have on, you know, how we think and how we feel as a, you know, as a planet almost. so, 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 yeah, for us, it was... You know, if it was American, it was probably cool. You know, in a way that, like, you know, my 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 American friends here are often, you know, they'll often have sort of yeah, like surprising knowledge of you know things which I consider to be weird, minor, the you know minor British things that that I was aware of growing up. And um, uh, you know, I guess just to give you one example, um, the um, like obviously British comedy is you know huge, and, or you, you know. In a certain subculture, British comedy has, you know, for decades had a you know, beloved place here. But, you know, when I first came to Los Angeles, one of the very first things I wanted to do was I heard that you could go and visit the place where uh, the, the old comedy MASH was filmed. Mm. And so I took a hike out to the, um, the, the the setting of MASH. And, of course, you know, maybe I think I think sometimes like perhaps, you know, the way in which um, Monty Python was so, you know, the, the way in which some of my American friends feel about Monty Python might be similar to the way I feel about Mash, and mm-hmm. I think there's just maybe something that just, you know, we we're intrinsically valued to we're intrinsically programmed to value the thing that's that's different from from where we are. Mm-hmm.
0: Benny Hill was one that I really enjoyed.
1: Great, great. Some some good physical comedy there, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's funny, isn't it? Because like we sort of um, you, you know, I think. Um, you know, as, you know, as screenwriters and, you know, as, as anyone, you know, humor, you know, I think it evolves all the time. And I think, you know, we spend so much time trying to do clever, you know, clever, abstract wordplay or something, but you know, someone, someone pulling a chair away and someone, someone falling down, it's still the thing that, you know, we, we often find, you know, that's the laugh out loud funny stuff.
0: Yeah. I know some of, some of Hill's humor wouldn't pass muster nowadays but I was always amazed at how much how much he could write how many you know lyrical things he could write like just endlessly all these word plays that he had Um, yeah
1: yeah I mean I I wonder I don't know the story I wonder if he had a team like you know I think in those days it wasn't uncommon for those people to have you know like like a whole a whole team behind him so it's, i wonder maybe we'll have to look it up but i think it's possible that he may have had you know a writer's room behind him
0: that may be but no one else seemed to have that kind of writer's room that he had at least for sure. what we got um yeah so uh did you have any difficulties uh finishing or getting the book published
1: no i mean i had i had a, a little bit of a hiccup because my mom got sick uh right oh. when i was Finishing it until there was probably, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, we, I, I lost, you know, probably a bit of time there. Mm. Um, so it, the book sat on, my, sat on my hard drive for quite a long time. Mm. Um, uh, and then w- when we kind of took out in the world, like, you know, obviously, I've, you know, I, I work as a screenwriter. So I have, you know, some some connections in, in, in the world, but, you know, not many in, in the world of publishing. Mm. Um, I was lucky to find a great agent in London and she... Um, she, she sent it out and I think you know again it's it's an unusual book so you know we definitely had interest very quickly but equally you know I think some people were interested but were you know a bit you know wary of the fact it was a book about screenwriting a screenwriting android and so much of it I think in publishing comes down to marketing right I mean I'm I'm learning this more and more that you know sometimes they might love something but you know if, if they don't know how to market it then that's that's going to be a problem and actually you know the Maybe 30 years ago, things were, you know, published simply on, you know, an editor's approval or recommendation. And now it's much more a sort of cohesive thing of, like, how are we going to market this book and all, all of that. So um, so we were lucky with, we, you know, the book found us home with, you know, great publishers both in, in the U.S. And, and the U.K. And I think they've, you know, they've all absolutely got, you know, what I was trying to do and have been, have been very supportive of that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think... Um, you know there's probably as with anything you know there's you know just so much content now and so many submissions that you know it's probably i think for for all of us who are kind of you know because i'm sort of starting out in this you know it's my first novel mm-hmm. um i think you know it always takes a bit of luck to, to find the right people that are going to support you and i was lucky to find them
0: mm-hmm. um i've actually known a couple writers who, who got good contracts but the complaint was that the um As, as first time writers, they had to do their own marketing that the, the publisher didn't do a whole lot for them. They kind of threw them out into the wild and said, get yourself popular. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I mean, I think that's, I think at a very elementary level, I think that's kind of the basic model. Mm it is is i i've had to explain to me that because you know so many books get published so for instance in britain last week there were 600 new hardback books published Mm -hmm. um and that's partly books that were delayed from the spring because of the pandemic and partly it's because you know september is when they publish you know lots of the big books for the run-up to to the holidays Mm -hmm. um but you know yeah the idea of how how anyone can expect to be, you know, heard or found, you know, if you don't already have some sort of following, it's, it's a, you know, incredible challenge. And I think, um, you know, you know, as it's been explained to me is, you know, publishing a book is is expensive for the publishers, but it's not like making a movie is for the studios, you know, it's not hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, So, you know, the idea is that, you know, you kind of spread your bet, right? So, 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 so you publish, you know, several books, and then you wait and see which one is the one that's kind of gathering steam, and that's the one that you then put the weight of your, you know, your limited marketing and advertising budget behind. So, so yeah, I, I think your friends probably, you know, pro- are probably absolutely right that that is the that is the experience. And um, I've well, I guess one thing that I've done is um, I've been kind of drag kicking and screaming onto Twitter,
0: yeah.
1: um, uh, and and I've actually I mean I've actually been enjoying it. Like 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 it's been nice to. Interact with people, and um, uh, but it's quite addictive, and and I don't know, um I don't know how brilliant it is for mental health, you know, mm. because of course, you know, I subscribe to lots of book things, and you know, you can easily spend your day reading, you know, lists of best books, which are all other people's books and not your books. So, um, <laughs> uh, um yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it, I think it's a double edged sword, but. Um, just in this climate, right? There's just, you know, there's, you know, so much content and it's wonderful because it means that, you know, we all have, we all have a lot to choose from. We all have a lot of ways to, to spend our time, you know, our our leisure time. Um, But it's, it's definitely, I think, ever harder to get your, you know, to get your
0: voice heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of all the social media platforms, I get the impression from my limited bit of experiences that a writer would do Best by having a, a good Twitter account. Um, that that one gives the most exposure.
1: Um, I, I great, yeah. I, that, I mean, I mean, that sounds right to me. And I think you know, theoretically, it's the one that should play to our natural strengths because it's words, right? <laughs> um, uh, and 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 yeah, I've heard you know, I, I've heard that Instagram is actually the one that's most challenging for you you know for mental health, like that's been shown. <laughs> bit, um, because I think the thing about Twitter and Facebook is that, you know, people will fairly frequently post on those things, you know, that they're having a bad day or, you know, their job just fell through or, you know, something else. Whereas Instagram is, of course, you know, image-based and and it's mainly just, you know, people's, you know, happiest moments and achievements. And I think if we were, you know, from another planet and we wanted to make, we wanted to design a system for humans to feel, you know, not good enough and inadequate and unhappy, you know, we might design a stream of, you know, everyone you you know celebrating their greatest moments whilst you know you're you're sit, sitting at home on your couch scrolling through them um, <laughs> you, you know that might be what that system would look like i think
0: yeah um so what's your next or or current writing project
1: great yeah well so currently um I'm actually writing the screenplay for for this book <laughs> um so so we had some some great excitement in that um The director Edgar Wright liked the book, and so I've been writing the the screenplay for him, with the hope that it will be a movie by him someday.
0: So, what do you think of the uh, the the source material you're working from?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's promising but flawed. Um, (laughs) um, No, no, it's actually quite funny because I've actually found it. um, I think when I've adapted things in the past, you know, when I've adapted other books, for you know. a studio or a production company or something i think i'm always so respectful of the writer you know and i'm trying to square the circle of like you know get to the bottom of the writer's vision and you know staying true to the text whilst also you know inevitably there's you know things you have to change to to to, to make it fit on the screen mm. um and i've always been sort of you know so so cautious about that whereas you know the fact that it's my own book, I think I feel much freer to say, "Oh, we can change that. That's fine. That's fine. You know, that will, Let's just make the best possible screen version of this." And I think also there's been this brilliant, like, um, letting go thing that, that the book was my version of the story. You know, I've 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 told that story and I've had my chance to tell that story, and I'm thrilled that you know it's out there and people are reading it. Um, and then you know, in this case, I think you know. Edgar is such an amazing storyteller and such an amazing
0: director that,
1: you know, I'm as thrilled as anyone to see, you know, his version of it. And I just want to, you know, do whatever I can to to support
0: that. Can you say if it's going to be animated or live action?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's live action. I can definitely say that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. But you haven't, you haven't decided what actors you want in or actresses. You won in the various no, ones, right? No, yeah, no, that's,
1: that, that's, that, that, that's well above my pay grade, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, actually, fortunately. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I think Edgar's movies are just always so brilliant in every capacity and they're also, you know, always like exquisitely cast. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I haven't had a, a conversation with him about it at all, but you know, I'll be very excited to hear who he has in mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, where can, uh, where can people find you online?
1: Um, great. So, so, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm a few places. We just we uh, we just mentioned Twitter, and my address at Twitter is uh, the Simon Bot. Which, with hindsight, I think probably not a great idea to have bot in your Twitter name. Like I thought it'd be funny, and um, <laughs> but 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 I'm pretty sure I'm like regularly banned from things, and you know that I'm not showing up in people's feeds because you know it contains the word bot. Um, so, so, so if you can find me at the Simon Bot, um, uh, and then my website is. Uh, um, you can get two ways. You can either do com, or you can just go to dot com. but they both go to the same place because that bit on Squarespace, I, I was able to work. That was one of the simpler things.
0: Now, you can change your Twitter name. Um, is there a reason? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, that, uh, I guess my question is, if you are worried about that, would you change your name or are you just kind of, you're married to to what you have?
1: Uh, Yeah, no, I I mean, I I would change it. I mean, I think think the truth is is that I don't quite know. Like, you know, I I only have, I have sort of, you know, I'm I'm new to it, so I have about 500 followers right now. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, I I, I don't know, you know, if I'm just, you know, not getting much interaction. I mean, I get some interaction, but I don't know if I'm not getting so much interaction simply because I have, you know, only 500 followers or, you know, if it's to do with the, if if it's to do with the bot thing, so um, so so I think I think I'll, I'll I'll give it a little while and and see what happens. But you're absolutely right that I'd forgotten that that you can just change that can't you? So, uh, yeah,
0: so,
1: yeah. I pretty... can change it. the the Simon, Simon is not a bot. I
0: wonder if would <laughs> work. <help. laughs> that would be that, that's a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I don't think you'd lose any. I mean, it doesn't. Your followers don't disengage just because they see a different name. I mean, they might, but. Uh, they'll still be linked sure. to you,
1: I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and it's like phone numbers, isn't it? It's like no one's actually typing out my, you know, my Twitter name at the moment, just as we don't remember phone numbers anymore. It doesn't really matter, right? It's just, you know, you click on my, you click on my grinning face on your Twitter and
0: that's,
1: <laughs> that, that, that's how it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. Well, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words?
1: Uh, no, I just want to say thank you for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting today. i
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern-day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.